the concern that they're not going to be able to produce enough milk for their baby is in the top one or two reasons that women stop breastfeeding. But here's what I like about this question. This question is evidence that women can't get away from their first birth And in my case, my first C-section was due to failure to progress and my second was scheduled. Is the fact that I had failure to progress for my first something that works against me, which is kind of ridiculous for a midwife to not be aware of that, but I think I was in denial. <laughs> I would say unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. I'd like to start off today's Q&A episode by publicly thanking you and Zoo, who works with us behind the scenes on the wonderful birthday weekend in Maine. So Trisha and Zoo, when you're listening, thank you so much. We had so much fun. We had a great time. That was the best. Working, not working was the hashtag of the weekend. Speaking of Maine, I came across this really sweet story on the news. Apparently it went viral. There was a baby born on a little island off the coast of Maine. She was number six, I think, fifth or sixth baby. Her name is Azalea Bell Gray, and she was the first baby born on the island since 1927. When she was, was this bo- birth? Just happened? Just, just, just happened like two days ago. It must be a tiny island. There's so many little islands off the coast of Maine right there. It must have been a home birth then, right? Oh, yeah. It was a home birth. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Not in a hospital. There's no hospital on the island. Um, it was her first, the mother's first home birth, but her fifth or sixth child. I'm not sure which. And um, it was a planned home birth. And she wrote about the story and it got picked up by the local newspaper in Maine, which then got picked up by like NPR, which then got passed on to Good Morning America. She got interviewed in People magazine. And look, here she is now being talked about on the Down to Birth show. Her true claim to fame. Exactly. Um, You know, I was just thinking, wouldn't it be nice to be able to give first-time pregnant women the confidence of a fifth or sixth-time pregnant woman? You just know she felt fine because she had done it five times before. I assume and hope they had a plan B anyway. But you know what I mean? The first-timers, even that woman her first time, you know she just had so many doubts. Right, but you you know that if you're giving birth on an island off the coast of Maine with no probably no emergency services of any kind, you know, you're pretty confident in your ability because imagine what, what do you do if you have to make a transport across the ocean? I mean, that, that still is a possibility. So I do wonder what their plan would have been. You know, there's, I'm sure they, they obviously go back and forth all the time. They have boats, there's ferries, a helicopter, maybe, I don't know. They can probably hang glide. (laughs) (laughs) Swim. I mean, (laughs) But like, remember when we were there and there were gale warnings? (laughs) What what if it's a night like that? Like here on the East Coast, we worry about the nights that there's snowstorms or rainstorms getting to a birth. But imagine having to cross the ocean at three in the morning under like stormy conditions in in labor. Yep. Anyway, kudos to her. her. That's a really awesome story. I love that. Very cool. And also, 
I think we should see if she'll tell her story on the show. I'm going to oh, work on that. Oh, that's a good idea. That's great. Good. That'd be fun. I'm going to call her up. We'll be like, we've made you famous. <laughs> she'll be listening to her voicemail from People Magazine and then <laughs> <laughs> and then me from the Don DeBerge show. She'll be like, oh my God, it's Trisha. That's right. Just like, you know, just like the people in the restaurant in Maine that night. Yeah. Remember how they kept looking at us? Yeah, because podcasters are so recognizable by their appearance. Totally. The face is almost no one ever sees. <laughs> All right. Unless you follow us on Instagram, in which case you see a lot of us. <laughs> All right. So let's jump in, Trisha. We got so many good ones from my own clients and on Instagram. We had a, a really big response. So I think I'm going to ask you, why does my baby keep turning and not staying head down at 33 weeks? Well, <laughs> you have a very active baby. That's, <laughs> I mean, the fact that your baby is turning and not staying non-vertex, not staying head up is a good sign. It means that there's plenty of room in your uterus and it's totally okay and normal at 33 weeks for your baby to still be moving around. Generally, women who have had more babies tend to have a little bit more space in the uterus. And we see this more often where babies are, you know, doing gymnastics uh, I, I suspect that your baby will eventually settle head down just fine. Um, 33 weeks is still early. You know, we, there, there's really nothing that you need to do. If your baby was fixed in a transverse position or a breech position, then that would be different. So I would say not to worry. How about this one for you? All right. I've recently heard of women incorporating a sits bath into their daily routine in the weeks leading up to birth. Is this helpful in the same way a hot compress would be during birth? That doesn't seem to be a thing, that women are taking sits baths during pregnancy. And I'm getting the feeling that this mom was under the impression it might help to reduce tearing. So there is a practice that is controversial by my estimation, and that is perineal massage. Yeah, I think uh, also I agree this is not something that I've I've heard of before, but I think that that's probably getting mixed in with the perineal massage thing that, you know, if you massage the perineum, if you use warm compresses prenatally, will you reduce the chance of tearing? Um, and like you said, the evidence on perineal massage is somewhat mixed. Um, there is good evidence though, to support the use of warm compresses in labor. That is definitely true. It definitely does seem to reduce uh, tearing, especially especially significant tearing, but I don't think that there is anything to sit spaz prenatally that would be helpful other than it, it might feel good and that's okay. There's nothing harmful. But one thing you can do is take an Epsom salt bath. I would first start by saying, make sure you're buying good quality Epsom salts. I wouldn't go to a store where they have ones with added fragrance. That actually does have some known benefits for pregnancy and even for any of us. So in pregnancy, it can relieve sore muscles, round ligament pain, even leg cramps. And they definitely help you um, sleep better if you do a bath at night. And Epsom salts are magnesium sulfate. So it does increase your magnesium level in pregnancy, which is certainly beneficial. And, you know, just relief from any kind of dryness, itchiness, discomfort. So I would say there's only benefits to be derived from enjoying a nice Epsom salt bath. And if a bath is not convenient for you, if you're not Trisha and you don't take the time for a <laughs> daily long 
morning bath because you because <laughs> you treat yourself that well. Um, you can just fit it into your day by um, doing a foot bath. You're, the feet are very porous, and it's extremely beneficial just to do an Epsom salt foot bath. I'm forever going to tease you about your baths. Hey, go for it, man. It's my wake up routine. I have to put a time. I have to use a timer though. Otherwise I'll squander the day away. It's unfathomable to me. All right. What do we have? Okay. Well, we have been talking a lot about VBAC lately. And so we got several questions on VBAC. So here's the first one. Hi ladies. I heard episode number 55 of the woman who had a VBA 2C. That is a VBAC after two cesareans. I've had two C-sections and we're also planning on having a third. A third cesarean or a third birth? I'm, I'm not sure. sure she means a third birth. I'm sure. Okay. Let's assume I that, would think. Zoe. Yes, I think we need to assume that. Okay. Yeah. The woman in your episode had two scheduled C-sections. And in my case, my first C-section was due to failure to progress and my second was scheduled. Is the fact that I had failure to progress for my first something that works against me? I would say very much on the contrary. I'm comforted to hear that your first birth was due to failure to progress. Not that that is a legitimate reason for a C-section. In most cases, it certainly is not. However, that means your body went through labor. And the more that your body has experienced being in labor, the more easily that VBAC is likely to go. It's the scheduled C-section. So we had the woman in episode number 55 who had had two scheduled C-sections. She had a very easy vaginal birth despite the fact that her body had never known anything but scheduled C-sections. So you've got that going for you. I would really say it's quite the opposite of what you are concerned about. Trisha? I totally agree. I just, uh, failure to progress is often simply failure to wait failure to be patient. You just didn't have the opportunity to be in labor long enough to, to potentially deliver vaginally. And I don't know the history of the birth. I don't know the reasons, but what is really important is that in working with your provider for this next birth, if vaginal birth is what you're going for, that your provider and you discuss the history, why you had the C-section, and that story isn't um, something that they believe is going to be a repeat. So I agree with you that it is the opposite of that. Failure to progress is a good reason to go for a VBAC. Yeah, so even though you don't know her history and the situation around it, if it were called failure to progress, then everything, all with all the information you have, it looks like that's a very good starting position for her in going into a VBAC. Yes. Trisha, we got a couple of questions that were phrased differently, but asking the exact same thing. We have one of my clients and a couple on Instagram who are writing in and asking right now while they're pregnant what they can do to ensure that they will produce enough milk postpartum. I never realized how many women worried about this in pregnancy. I know it's really common postpartum that women are constantly wondering whether they're producing enough. But I guess we're at a point now where whatever women are hearing from their friends and the people around them, they're going through pregnancy already worrying about it. Yes, this is one of the biggest fears I think women have around breastfeeding. The concern that they're not going to be able to produce enough milk for their baby is um, is in the top one or two reasons that women stop breastfeeding. So I actually just did a mini-sode on this. It's episode 56, and it was all about the first four to six weeks of breastfeeding and basically about milk production. 
it's a common belief that it is the mother's breast that are uh, the determinant of whether or not she will make enough milk. And it's not the case. It is the baby who determines your milk supply. So what can you do to increase milk volume if you have trouble producing enough for the baby? Your supply is based on demand. So it's all about how often you feed your baby. That is what determines your milk supply. There isn't anything you need to do to try to prepare your body to produce enough milk. You have the ability to make all the milk your baby needs so long as you listen to the demands of your baby. So that means basically throwing out the schedule, throwing out the ideas that your baby should only feed for this long on one breast and um, only eight times in 24 hours or only every three hours, you need to really try to let go of those rules and feed on cue. Cynthia, you and I can both speak to our experiences with breastfeeding. I don't think I ever wrote down a time, a time limit, a time, a length of a feed or a time in between feeds. I certainly didn't. And I remember bringing my son to one of his first pediatrician appointments ever And the nurse came in and measured his head and did everything. And she saw me breastfeeding and she said, okay, and do you have him on a schedule yet? And I was just totally flabbergasted by the question because I had read The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding published by La Leche League and they had never mentioned anything about a schedule. And I said, oh my God, my first thought was, oh my gosh, I missed a key point. What if I missed? So I said, no, I haven't. And she said, oh yeah, you're going to want to get him on a schedule. And I said, okay. And I'm always looking for a I'm always looking, I'm always asking why. And I was like, okay, what's, can you tell me why? And she, she truly stammered. She looked at me and just stammered. And she just raised her shoulders a little and said, um, I mean, cause it'll be easier for you. And I said, oh, for me? Oh no, never mind. I'll keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. I thought you were going to give me some major benefit for the baby. I can't believe there was ever a time I questioned my own intuition that much. It, it, I feel so much self-compassion for that young mother who questioned herself because it felt so right to breastfeed him every time he woke up from a nap and when he cried or when someone handed him to me, every time he wanted to, which was constantly. And Mm -hmm. it felt so right to me and to him. And we were in this really nice rhythm. And to have someone intervene and say to me, did you get him on a schedule yet? And the fact that I even questioned it and said, oh, like I was prepared for her to convince me of otherwise is just stunning to me. Right. Now that you're experienced, but, but as a first time mom, we always think, you know, our, our healthcare provider knows best. And the reality is what she said is totally not true. Putting the baby on a schedule isn't actually easier for you. It's harder. And it's harder because you're having to fight this like natural instinct. You know, your baby is crying and you're like, no, they have to wait another half an hour to eat. I can't even imagine doing that to the baby. It's shocking how many people still give the advice of of putting your baby in a schedule. However, I will say as they get older, it's okay. And you'll see in the mini-sode I talked about, there's this critical window of four to six weeks when your milk supply is uh, is fully established. And once you're in that place, once you've gotten there and your your supply equals the demands of your baby, then you can start using some scheduling techniques and your milk supply will... um, your milk supply should not be affected, but you have to feed on cue in those first four to six weeks to get your milk supply 
to meet your baby's demands because they're growing and your milk supply needs to increase with them through that time. Once you get to that four to six week window, you don't actually ever have to produce more milk than that, regardless of how much your baby grows. So the best thing you can do to increase your milk volume, if you feel you're having trouble producing enough, is to feed your baby more. Now, the only exception to that is that if your baby is not gaining weight well, so that is the one variable that you definitely have to keep track of. You do need to weigh your baby. You also should track output, at least in the beginning. So poops and peas, that's a good way to know that they're, you know, that they're getting enough. But most importantly is weight, weight gain. If your baby is gaining weight well, and you feel like you're not producing enough, simply feeding your baby more should solve the problem. You can drink mother's milk tea. You can take some lactation blend or, or galactagogs to help increase your prolactin levels, but it doesn't matter how high you increase your prolactin levels if you're not stimulating your breasts. Did you just say the word galactagog? I did. What is that? <laughs> a galactagog. <laughs> Sounds like a fake word. <laughs> a galactagog. It is a crazy word, isn't it? It's a, it's, a galactagog is something that increases your prolactin levels. Is it a hormone or a supplement or what? Yeah, it's a compound. It's something in, it's an herb. Like, um, it's a galactagog. It's a galactagog. It's, uh, <laughs> it's self-explanatory. It's, it's fenugreek. Oh, it's fenugreek. Oh, yeah. you mean fenugreek is an example of a galactagog. Exactly. I got it. Fenugreek is an herb that has a galactagog function. Galactagogic effect on yeah. the... <laughs> now we're truly making up words. Okay. <laughs> it has to have an adjective. All right. So sorry. It's so hard for me to answer these questions simply because there's so much to it. Well, the mini episode is 10 minutes long. So for anyone who wants to learn about increasing milk supply, anyone early postpartum or pregnant, that is a valuable 10 minutes to pick up everything Trisha put out there on the topic. So thank you for the question because we now have an appreciation for how many women are concerned about this. Yes. I was I was fascinated, Trisha, when you talked in that episode about how once you do that in the first four to six weeks, you basically can relax and you're set. By the way, it's raining and you I'm sure you can all hear the rain behind me and I'm sorry about that, but I cannot control nature. Um, let's uh, move on. I do want to I did want to mention that in my current hypnobirthing class, I have two same sex couples and uh they submitted some excellent questions and Trisha and I have decided that we're going to dedicate a separate episode to a Q&A for same-sex couples because they're very interesting questions that are definitely unique to uh, the families with two mothers. So um, stay tuned for that. And if you are among my same-sex couple clients who submitted those questions or who would like to hear the answers, we will be putting out that episode in the very near future in the coming weeks. It'll be one of our regular Wednesday episodes. Love it. Doing it. Mom power. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's better than one mom? Two. Or three. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Three is definitely a whole different story. <laughs> Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. 
Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. I have a question about the urge to push. In hypnobirthing, we believe we should listen to our bodies, and when we have the urge to push, we should do so. But what if we're not fully dilated yet? Won't that cause harm? This happened during my first birth. I was at seven or eight centimeters when they first checked me at the hospital, so they transferred me to the birthing room right away. I remember having an unmistakable urge to push while they were transferring me, but they told me to hold it. I guess I did, because I ended up giving birth on my back in a bed. Thank you for your time, and thanks again for the great podcast. I think this one is a little bit more in your domain. The only thing I want to say is, yes, in hypnobirthing, we, well, Mickey Mongan goes a little bit far with it. I don't really completely agree with her. She actually says um, we don't push in hypnobirthing, and I disagree. I do think the vast majority of women get a wonderful urge to push, and then they push as they should. You get a surge of adrenaline and um, push as your body is telling you to. This comes very easily when you're having a natural birth. It's a little harder when you have an epidural and you don't exactly know when the body is surging. Some women don't have that urge, and that's certainly healthy and perfect and fine as well, but I just don't like the, I don't like the notion that there is a right or wrong way to go about it. The only thing I would say is um, we don't want anyone to command you to push or not to push. And it always pains me to hear about a woman who has the urge to push, who is told to wait and to hold it. However, and this is Trisha's area, Trisha, what about that unlikely situation where a woman has the urge to push and they do check her and she is only eight centimeters? Is, I don't, I'm not sure that this woman was checked, so I'm not sure how she knew she was seven or eight. But can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So she said she was seven or eight, but I'm not sure that she got this urge to push. She may have been a little bit further along when that happened. So she might have been nine or 10. She might have already been nine or 10 at that yeah. point. Yeah, that can happen in a moment. That totally. can happen in one surge. Absolutely, especially if it's not your first baby. So yes, it does sometimes happen that women get the urge to push when they're not fully dilated. And unfortunately, yes, if that is happening, you do need to try to resist the urge to push because pushing on a cervix that isn't fully dilated can cause the cervix to swell. This happens a lot when women have just a little bit of cervix left, when they're maybe nine centimeters or they have an anterior lip. I've been there. I've, I've had to deal with it. It's as a midwife and as a birthing mother. And it's brutal because that urge can be really overwhelming. You hopefully just have to get through a couple contractions like that. It means you're very near full dilation. And um, you do you do just have to breathe through those contractions. So an anterior lip is when there's just a little bit of the anterior part of your cervix left. So it's basically being about nine and a half centimeters. In some situations, it's just the way that the baby's head is sitting on the cervix. And if it's not evenly putting pressure on the cervix, so it might be putting more pressure on the posterior part of the cervix. The posterior part of the cervix melts away and the anterior part of the cervix is left remaining. But you really need to get to that full dilation. The cervix needs to be totally gone before you really want to work with your urge to push to push the baby through. If you have an anterior lip, hands and knees is generally a good position because that puts a little bit more weight on the anterior part of your cervix and helps it 
dissolve. Sometimes providers will also insert their fingers in and use their fingers to try to just slide the cervix up and over the baby's head just to get that last little part away. It can be uncomfortable, but it can also be effective. Once you're fully dilated, you can go with the urge to push. Uh, I agree with you that you want to use your own instincts to push. You don't want to follow controlled pushing or guided pushing from anyone else. It's best just to use use that surge, use the contraction, use the urge when you have it, and you're good to go. So here's a quick one for you, Cynthia. Is it too late to switch hospitals for a VBAC birth? Well, the key question is, how far along are you? But the deeper question I would rather talk to you about is, what are your reasons for wanting to switch? I am a big proponent of switching providers, and I know the listenership knows that well because of the feedback we get on all the women who have changed providers since starting to listen. But frequently, hospitals will draw the line at around 36 weeks. They'll say that's a little bit, you know, after that, they're not going to take new clients. But I have had countless clients um, in my community here where um, they've switched at even 39, 40, and 41 weeks. And the reason for that is sometimes that's when a woman really gets to know her provider. Sometimes they seem very supportive of her birth plan all along. And then right at the end, when she needs them most, they are suddenly pressuring her into induction for no reason or something else comes up that makes her want to run. I would rather talk to you about why you want to switch. And frequently, when it comes down to VBAC, switching from one obstetrician to another lands you in a similar situation. Rule number one often for a VBAC is not to give birth with the doctor who performed your C-section because whatever circumstances may have led to that C-section might still exist. Um, But why are you switching to another hospital? Have you considered birthing with midwives in a hospital? for example, really changing it up. So I, I think the straightforward answer is around 36 weeks. It frequently can be later, but why are you switching? Are you running from something or are you running toward the right provider? And I think just that's a much bigger discussion if we had more information. The only thing I would add is that we do know from speaking with Dr. Neil Shaw that the number one risk factor for a C-section is the hospital that you give birth in. And if this woman knows that the hospital that she's currently planning to give birth in is one of those horrendous hospitals with a 50 plus percent C-section rate, and she has another option where the C-section rate is significantly less, even though it's, we're talking about VBAC, it puts you in a little bit different category. Um, then, you know, if, if that's the case, I think it's a quick and easy decision. It is a bigger discussion and, and more a little tough without some of the details, but um, hopefully helpful. All right, here's a fun, easy one. Can the symptoms of your second pregnancy be completely different from your first? The answer is yes. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I mean, Next. it's it's actually surprising how different one pregnancy experience can be from another. Um, personally, for me, I had like, tons of pregnancy symptoms with my first, like, like every pregnancy symptom you could imagine. And I didn't even know with my second that I was pregnant until I was almost three months pregnant, which is kind of ridiculous for a midwife to not be aware of that. But I think I was in denial. I would say unacceptable. (laughs) (laughs) I remember going to work one day and, uh, and I asked my, uh, 
my the other midwife, my colleague who I was working with, I was like, is it weird that I haven't gotten my period for two and a half months? You were like, what could that mean? Yeah. I was like, what do you think it's stress? <laughs> and they just, they actually, there were two of them and they both just looked at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> You're pregnant. What are you talking about? You're pregnant. I'm like, I can't be pregnant. I don't even feel the slightest bit pregnant. It's not possible. It must be because I stopped breastfeeding like, you know, a couple months ago and I'm still having lactational amenorrhea. <laughs> so you were just in denial. I was totally in denial. So yes, your symptoms can be one way with one child and another way with a second child. And it does not mean that one pregnancy is a boy and one's a girl. Cause oh, I no. thought that too. No, my, my pregnancies were almost exactly the same. I had no nausea, crippling exhaustion and, you know, the same little backache starting at about five and a half months, same thing. But here's what I like about this question. This question is evidence that women can't get away from their first birth experience when they are pregnant for the second time. They obsessively relive their first pregnancy and their first birth. And what happens when I'm working with couples, let's say in my refresher class, I say to them, I know you keep replaying your first birth. And I promise you, after you give birth to the second child, you are not going to call me and say, and this one went exactly like the first one. You are going to have a very unique experience. And this is important because if a woman has group B strep the first time around, she can obsessively worry that she's going to have it again or preeclampsia. Or if labor starts really slowly, then she's expecting it to go slowly. Or if the baby came two weeks late, she thinks, well, I just give birth late. And it's only because we create these totally false beliefs in our mind that we have any clue as to how any of this is going to go. So when the pregnancy is different from the previous one, I think it's a nice reminder that you are in for a very unique experience and you will look at those two children one day and say the same thing. They have such different personalities. It's, it's fascinating. It's part of the journey. And any reminder that you're in for a new birth experience is, is a good thing because you want to detach from your expectations. It doesn't mean lower them. It just means detach from them. By the way, that's a great metaphor for life because anything that we experience once in life, we expect that when we experience it again, it's going to be the same experience. And it almost never is. That's true. So we get, we get like you said, attached to an idea of how something is going to go based on a past experience. And that's actually what creates anxiety for us. And if we can learn to release that belief or release that expectation and know that same experience repeated a second time is actually a different experience. In Buddhism, it's what causes suffering expectations. That's right. right. So exactly. Look at us figuring out life, explaining everything there is to know about life in a simple episode. <laughs> life explained. Should we change the name of our podcast? Yeah. <laughs> I got a question I feel we need to answer, and it's going to be a really hard question. What can I do about body image issues in pregnancy? I think that you just have to really trust that your body and your baby are doing exactly what they need to do. As long as you're taking care of yourself, right? If you're eating well, um, the, the changes that your body goes through are the necessary changes that need to happen. 
I think we really should try to find the right person to bring on the podcast, Trisha, and talk about this because it is a major issue postpartum for women as well. You know, oh, yeah. it comes up in every single support group. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult culture that we live in. Very difficult as far as women being judged every which way on how they look. Even women being called beautiful when they're pregnant is still a judgment on how we look. Um, it's it's just very difficult. So we're going to try to see what we can do to give you the answer that this important and relatable question deserves. I like your suggestion. Let's let's really get an expert because there's a lot to that question. So Cynthia, I think that is it for today. Also, just a reminder that we have our new website up and running if you haven't checked it out yet. We are busy on Instagram and um, we love to have conversations with you through social media. We really appreciate reviews, but the best thing you can possibly do for us is if you're enjoying the podcast, post it somewhere, share it where other pregnant women just might hear about it uh, so that we can spread the love. (laughs) Hey, it's all about love. That's it, man. That's what creates family. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtobirthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Hi, ladies. I heard episode number 55 of the woman who had a VAB2C. You said it backwards. Thank you. What is You said VAB. You said vaginal afterbirth. (laughs) (laughs) This is like you and the percent sign. I'm convinced it's the same part of your brain (laughs) that's linked to the percent. Have you seen how much better I've been with that lately? Yeah. I've really been making an effort. Okay, here we go. Take three.